Tonight's reading is from 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The word of the Lord. Some years ago, a uh, couple started coming to church. I'll call them Mary and Tom. And Mary had become pretty serious about growing in her faith. And Tom is a, is a good man, a good father, uh, loves Mary. And he wanted to support her, and so he started to come for a little while. But then he stopped, and he explained to Mary that uh, he had decided that he was not a Christian, that he loved her, but they would not follow Christ together. And I remember talking with Mary about this. It was very distressing, and she was wondering about what she should do, how should they approach that with the children. Um, After a while, some conflict entered the marriage because Tom's a very intelligent man. He began to listen to a lot of Bart Ehrman lectures from the teaching company. Uh, on uh, what is wrong with Christianity. And and they began to fight almost every night over uh, matters of faith and the direction of their home. And I remember several conversations where Mary wanted to know, I don't know where to go with this. Uh, How do I stay faithful to Christ and and love uh, this man that I love so much? How should uh, a wife respond when... She becomes a follower of Christ, and her husband chooses not to. What, what should she do if her faith angers her husband and uh, perhaps even threatens their marriage? Well, that is the question that Peter is addressing in, in tonight's text. And he's talking to believing wives who are married to non-believing husbands. He describes them as those who do not obey the word. And as we've seen uh, in our study of 1 Peter, most of his readers are Gentiles. They're converts from the Roman gods. And so when a, Roman, when a Roman wife would convert to Christianity and become a follower of Christ, it put her in a very difficult position. Uh, women were bound in Roman society by law to worship the husband's gods, Plutarch, a writer from that period expressed the common belief of the day. He says, It's becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the front door upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. 
Now, the Romans believed that Christianity was an outlandish superstition. So, when a woman would make the courageous act of deciding to follow Christ, she was seen as a rebel against the social order and put herself at great risk. And in this culture, a Roman uh, husband had sole authority to decide whether her babies would live or die, whether uh, she would remain his wife, or whether he would beat her. Cato, another Roman writer, said, if you catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you can kill her with impunity and without a trial. So this was the culture that uh, Peter's readers were living in. And so they're wanting to know, uh, we have come to Christ. How can we stay in our marriages without being killed? Uh, How can we stay in our marriages without being persecuted? And how can we witness to our Husbands, how can we live in a way that reveals the gospel? That's the background of this text. And he starts off, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, you probably know that uh, different Christians interpret this teaching in different ways. Some interpreters see in this passage a divine pattern for Christian marriage. Uh, one commentator says that I read this week, 1 Peter 3, 1-7 is a magnificent text for understanding God's plan for an ideal marriage. Submission, he says, means that a Christian wife willingly submits to her husband's authority and leadership in the marriage. Wives, he says, are to submit to good or harsh husbands. Now, I respect this commentator a great deal. I have a number of his books on my shelf, but I do not agree with his interpretation of this passage. Uh, I personally, as I read it, don't think that Peter is trying to cast a vision for God's ideal plan for marriage in this passage. I think Peter's giving Christian wives living in the first century Greco-Roman world a strategy for staying alive and for witnessing. And in a manner similar to his instruction to Christian slaves, uh, he's telling them how to respect the social order and to fit into it as best they can while remaining faithful to Christ. Uh, The society that Peter lived in could not envision an economy without slavery. It also could not envision a marital structure in which women had any power. The prevailing view of gender roles in the Roman society of this period was that men must rule over women because women were inferior to men. The law actually uh, said that women were as children. Josephus, the historian, expressed the commonly held view. He said, a woman is inferior to her husband in all things, therefore let her be obedient to man. And one scholar sums up the view of women in the first century Roman society like this. Dominant among the elite was the notion that the woman was by nature inferior. She lacked the capacity for reason that the man had. She was ruled by her emotions and was, as a result, given to poor judgment, immorality, intemperance, wickedness, and avarice. She was untrustworthy, contentious, and as a result, it was her place to obey. So in that society, women naturally submitted to husbands as slaves naturally submitted to To masters, there was no other way that they could see of ordering the society. Now, my daughter Bryden has been working in Indonesia this week, uh, in Jakarta and a couple of other islands. 
And before she left, her boss sent her an email. And she, the boss said, when you go to Indonesia, which is a traditionally Muslim country, I'd like you to wear a head covering when you're out in public. Because in that society, that's a way that a woman shows her deference to male authority. I want you to do that as a way of respecting your hosts. And so she has done that. Now, he does not intend by this email to tell her how she should live in all times and all places and in our culture here. He's giving advice to a particular culture in a particular specific situation. And I think that's what Peter is doing here. I don't think he's sketching out broad, eternal principles about the role of men and women in marriage. I think what we'll see in a moment is that this text is, a, is more about evangelism than it is about marriage. The Bible has a lot to say about the way men and women relate in marriage, um, but that's not the purpose of this passage. So what is his strategy? Well, he says that they should submit so that their non-believing husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So what is he saying? He's saying, essentially, don't preach. Live a life that is so respectful, so honoring, so fragrant of Christ, that he becomes attracted to him. Or we might say, live a beautiful life before your husband. And by a beautiful life, we certainly don't mean a perfect life or an always happy life or a life with no mistakes. Obviously, life was hard then, life is hard now. Live in a way that you reveal Christ before your husband, and they will be one to him. So in other words, when when a pagan married to a Christian woman has to be able to see that his wife's conduct is reverent and pure by Roman standards, even when she cannot join him in the worship of his gods. Now he goes on to develop the point in verses 3 to 4. Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. He says, don't get all caught up in externals. Uh, There was a view in that day that certain kinds of clothing were seductive and revealed a shallowness and a a moral depravity. A lot of the writers wrote about that. And so he says, don't dress like that. Don't wear those kind of clothes that make you look like, uh, like you're trying to seduce people. Instead, focus on the inner person of your heart. Cultivate a beautiful soul so that you can live a beautiful life before your husband. And then he concludes with the example of Sarah. He says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and don't fear anything that is frightening. So what's he saying? Well, he's just drawing from a commonly known example in Scripture, the life of 
Sarah, a very godly woman. Abraham's the father of the faithful. Sarah was seen as the mother of the faithful. Sarah submitted to Abraham, and in the language of that day, it was called obeying her husband, calling him Lord or Sir. So she's an example of submission. But here's a little interesting. If you go back and you look at Sarah and Abraham's relationship, I don't think we want to make Sarah an example of always submitting to her husband because uh, several times Abraham submits to her. Um, Here's just one example. Uh, When Isaac is born and there's tension in the family, God says to Abraham to obey Sarah. He says, God said to Abraham, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, before we get into some application, what's going on in this passage? Well, imagine that you are on a long flight overseas and you're sitting next to a Saudi Arabian woman. And along the way, you begin to talk about your faith. You reveal your faith to her and she becomes a Christian. And you develop an email correspondence back and forth. And she eventually writes you and says, I desperately want to follow Christ. But in my country, it is the law that I obey my husband's religion. And I'm very worried that I'm going to be put out of this marriage or worse. What should I do? How do I stay faithful to Christ in Saudi Arabia while I'm married to a non-believing husband? Well, you wouldn't write back something about Um, the freedom of Western women or uh, claiming her freedom in Christ or something like that, you would say, submit to your husband for the sake of the gospel. Honor him. Revere him. And in that way, by your life, he will see a witness of the gospel and you will be protected. So I think that's what's going on in this passage. Now, there is a broader principle here, and this is what I want to work our way to, for witnessing in a post-Christian culture, for witnessing in a culture where people are wary of the gospel. And I think the principle goes something like this. The best way to witness to someone wary of the gospel is to live a beautiful life before them so that they will see God at work in you and want to know more. That's really what he's telling her to do. And in 1 Peter 3.15, he follows up on this and he says, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. So I think it works like this. When your son comes home from college and says, You know, Mom and Dad, I, I respect you, but... I've decided I no longer believe. Uh, When you have a good, good friend who just always delights in sending you the latest link to a news report about Christians behaving badly. Do you have that friend? I think we all have that friend. Um, How do you witness to that friend? I, I think of my dear friend Peter. I've mentioned him before. We swim together in the mornings. For some reason, he's drawn to something he sees in me. He keeps pursuing me. I keep pursuing him. But he is just repulsed by Christianity. <laughs> and uh, this uh, Tuesday, I got an email. This is typical. Just out of the blue, I just, he'd gone off to be with his fiancée, and I just sent, I thought, this real warm and Christ-like email. And he says, um, <laughs> he says, why do some Christians speak in such angry voices? It happens on Market Square, too. 
I submit that the answer is the fundamental flaw in organized religions. Created by man, it's carried out by man. The key word is man. And then he has a video clip of angry Christians on Market Square. Um, so how do I witness to Peter? Well, I remember many years ago, a good friend left the faith. And uh, we'd been through a lot together, and I was very troubled. And I, I uh, ambushed him. I got every book I could find on apologetics, every tape. Young people in the, in the old days, we would listen to sermons on these little plastic things we called uh, tapes. And I, I, I would send him tapes and articles. And ultimately, all it did was push him away. It wasn't what he, he needed. I just needed to win him without a word with the conduct of my life. During the 90s, there was this powerful movement called the Promise Keepers, and some of you are old enough to remember that. And It filled these stadiums with Christian men coming together and cheering, and it was, uh, was kind of odd, but it was fun. And, you know, a number of us were doing it, and God, sometimes, I think God was at work in it. And, and I remember this one dear woman loved her husband so much, and we were all going to Promise Keepers, and... Um, she just practically drugged this guy to the stadium and just, just, please, honey, please go. Pastor Doug, would you take him? Would you come by early? Here's money for a T-shirt. You know, just anything. Get him in the stadium. Get him Jesus. You know, every Father's Day, there's another devotion, a little Christian men's devotion. Oh, and the poor guy has like 20 Christian books on the side of his uh, bedside. He wasn't there. And really what was happening was she was pushing him away. What needed to happen was just... Uh, quiet, beautiful life that comes from the hidden person of the heart, the deep soul, the Christ in me. Now, by that, I, I really want you to hear me. I'm not talking about some fake life, some happy, clappy, everything's perfect, I've got it all together, and I used to, I used to be miserable, and then I met Jesus, and everything's great. I hope that's not your testimony, because it's not true. I know you. Um, <laughs> It's a real witness, I think, just that when you do suffer, when you do have doubts, when you're embracing mystery, when life is disappointing, that there's somehow quiet peace about you and and, and somehow in your brokenness there's a serenity, that kind of thing. That's, I think, what he's talking about. And I think we should remember an important church. I've, I've heard this principle preached like if we were living for Christ more Hundreds would be coming to the Lord, and if we were fully sold out, they'd see it in us and they'd respond. Well, the last time I read the Gospels, the Lord himself walked the earth for three years and had like 11 at the end. So if people rejected Jesus himself, they're probably going to reject Jesus in you most of the time. So let's not go on a guilt trip about it. It's really the reason why my son doesn't believe or my wife or my father is because I'm such a lousy Christian. Maybe, uh, you know, okay, maybe in one or two cases. But I'd say even even if you just are like Mother Teresa, a lot of people still aren't going to believe. But the principle is that we try to live in such a Christ-centered way that we make people curious. How about that? Could we go with that? That at the very least, somebody wonders why you handled the rally last week differently than others. 
or why your father's cancer, there's just something different about the way that you're, that you're going through it. You make it curious. And that's one of the things that I, I love about this church is I watch you and I, I just see such beautiful lives. I'd be curious. And I could tell lots of stories. I'll just tell one. Um, David Leach teaches math at Bearden High School. And here's what I hear about David's ministry at, at Bearden. He is an outstanding math teacher, but he just loves his students very, very well. And so I hear that they come by before class to talk about their life. They stay after to talk about their life. They come from years past to talk about their life. They see something in him, and sometimes he gets the chance to give an explanation of his faith. I think that that's maybe the strategy for witnessing in a post-Christian culture. You live an authentic Christian life, not a fake one, not a happy, clappy one, a real one that smells like Jesus, and then people get a little curious and want to know more. And that, by the way, makes apologetics uh, have a different role. When I say apologetics, it's, I mean, providing reasons for why we believe. When I was in college, um, I was trained that you lead the way with apologetics, that if you, if you give them more than a carpenter by Josh McDowell or, or something like that, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, you start with that, here are all the reasons why you should believe, now believe. And I, I don't know, but anymore, that's not the way it works. Anymore, apologetics does nothing, in my experience, until a person's heart's been warmed by a curious life. Then, when you're starting to have that comment, and I'm not there with Peter yet. He's still sending me angry emails. Um, but then, when they start to go away, maybe there is something to this. I, I see something in you. Then Tim Keller's um, The Reason for God, or Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Uh, actually, my favorite is uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I think that's one of the best. That's where that comes in. Now, let's end with Peter's counsel to believing husbands. Um, Last verse, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, it may seem strange that his counsel to the wives is six times longer than his counsel to the husbands. And that is because the wife's position was much more difficult. In that culture, if a husband converted, the wife had to follow. When a wife converted took tremendous courage and, and made a, gr- a great problem. And what I want you to see is that even though Peter's instruction to husbands is brief, it's radical for a culture that gave women little respect. He says, love your wives in an understanding way, or literally in the Greek, it's according to knowledge. Now, now first of all, as far as I can tell, nobody else was saying this. That, that wasn't, the, your wife was just a thing you kind of owned. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is, is, is breathing in this beautiful ethic of the new community where we're all one in Christ. And so he says, I, I want you to know your wife. 
And then he says, I want you to honor her, to respect her. And then comes the bombshell. I want you to do this because you're joint heirs with them in the grace of life. No Roman man thought he was joint anything with his wife. And so what you have here is a revolutionary vision of the new community exploding into the rigid social categories of the ancient world. The biggest mistake I think I've made in my marriage, and I've made many, was that I did not do this in the early years of our marriage. Uh, I did not try to understand and know my heart's or my wife's deepest longings and desires. Uh, I was a very motivated young man. Uh, I believed that God had brought Sandy in my life uh, to help me fulfill God's vision on my life. But I did not take any time at all to stop and really ask, well, what's his vision on your life. Looking back, it was, it was a lot about me. And so I missed her. Um, I really did. I didn't know her. I was very concerned that she know me and help me, but I've told you this story. I'm embarrassed by it, but it just proves the point. Sandy's a very, very gifted dancer. She majored in dance in college. She's just extraordinary. And I enrolled in a seminary uh, where I had to take a vow uh, that we wouldn't dance. And we went to one wedding, and I went to the dean of the seminary, and I said, could we dance at this wedding? And uh, he said, no, you may not. And without even thinking uh, about what I was doing to my wife, I eagerly just said, sure, we'll go to school here. Then a few years later, uh, when, I, when I look back, and, and if you're young particularly, I, I really ask you to think about this. I, I looked to people I admired. I looked to people on the radio. I looked to people writing books to shape a vision for what was right for our home. And we talked about it, but I really didn't give her much of a voice. And I look back, and, and I realize that the marriage and the family structure that God was birthing uh, among us really became more about the expectations of the little Christian bubble I was in than what she and I were discerning was right for us together as a couple. It all felt right, but looking back, I would say I did not take the time to really know her so that we could build our family on what uniquely God was doing in us. And so I encourage you, and it's not too late for us old people too, but uh, if you're thinking about entering into some kind of a relationship like that, or don't start with somebody's blog or the latest book from the megachurch pastor on marriage or a sermon like this. 
You want to look at the scriptures together, we'll get together and look at them. What you, I would just say, go back each other and ask, how is God calling us with our unique gifts and talents to create a home? And it's probably going to look different than your mom and dad did it. It's probably going to look different than the way we did it. It might even look different than your neighbor does it. The important thing is that you two together discern God's will for your life. Well, the last thing we'll notice here is that Peter says that when when husbands don't do this, their prayers are hindered. And I I think he means, you know, when when my life as a husband is all about me, and I just see my wife as sort of a subordinate helping me reach my vision, and I'm not really plumbing the depths of her heart and trying to discern God's calling on her life and discern what God is doing in her spirit. It cuts me off from God. And uh, it hinders my spiritual life. And what about Mary? She and Tom have had a lovely marriage. Tom has not become a Christian. Mary is one of my heroes. She has loved him faithfully and well. Let's pray.